I do want to take a moment and just tell you, at least introduce, sort of introduce people. Um, first of all, we have someone who has been a part of the church and has been serving in the United States Army and has returned home. And I was told when he came in this morning, he said, apparently he was here a couple weeks ago and I just somehow missed him. But Josh, welcome back. It is such a blessing to have you. Thank you for serving. It's good to have you home. We also have a young lady who is with us, and she was up here earlier, and she read scripture for me, and we have a partnership with other colleges where we have tried to have interns that will come in and share in ministry and give them experience so that when they actually graduate from their ministry programs, that they will be ready, that they will have experienced a lot of the things that happen in the church life. Primarily, the students that have come to us have been from Southern Wesleyan University, but we had Maria Marcalongo, who was up here earlier, and she's down here on the front row. She is, um, she is a student at um, Kingswood, sorry, for some reason I forgot just for a moment, at Kingswood University, what used to be called Bethany Bible College, and she is a senior and will be graduating, so this is really her last big thing that she will be doing as a part of her education, and she will be with us throughout this entire semester, and it is such a blessing to have Maria. I will tell you that there is another connection for me and Maria. Uh, she came from a church in Colorado Springs, which is the same church where I pastored at many years ago, but when I knew her, she was about that big. Uh, and actually, when we left, we sold our house to her parents. So we have a connection with her family as well. It is such a blessing to have Maria with us. Would you welcome her as well? Well, welcome to all of you to 2020, and I hope everyone has had an amazing new year already, and I hope uh, all of you celebrated as we watch the calendar roll over to a new decade. I will tell you that uh, it served as an opportunity for me to reminisce a little bit, as this marked 20 years since the supposed Y2K disaster that never occurred. Experts, and I use that term very loosely, warned us that computers uniformly would crash and the world as we know it would come to an end. The only thing that these experts got right was the fact that we had no idea what the years ahead would bring. Well, certainly our world has changed since then. Some of it has been for good while other aspects have brought increased hardship. With advancements in technology, entertainment options have expanded. Media availability has blossomed. And we are supposedly more connected to one another today than any other generation before. Then there's the apparent moral decline that has also taken place in our culture. The fact that there are more mass crime events than we ever dreamed possible sexual perversion at every turn, and more people feeling alone than ever before. That's an odd one. More connected than any other generation before, yet more people feeling alone than ever before. Something is wrong with that. What does 2020 hold for us? What will be different in our lives when we wake up on January 1st, 2021? 
How will our lives have changed? I wish I could give you all of the answers as to what this year will hold, but I can't. What I can tell you is that God will be faithful regardless of what this year holds. I can also tell you that as a church, there are several things that we want to focus on because we're talking about revival and the need for that within our culture. Do you know where that needs to begin? Right here. And it needs to begin in our hearts, in us. If we don't experience revival, how can we expect the rest of our world to experience revival? It must begin here. Please note that as we work through 2020, the words focus and vision will be used often as we capitalize on the idea of having 2020 vision. We want God to use 2020 to expand and change our perspective. No longer seeing things the way we have in the past. And this is not just our hope for those who are not yet in the church. I want the people inside the church to change our perspective as well. I believe that even those in the church, even since Y2K, need to change our perspective. Foundationally speaking, let me begin by reminding you of a few things that will not change from 2019 to 2020. First, the mission of this church remains the same. We are to make disciples who will make a difference. That means reaching those who are lost and helping them to grow in their faith, becoming more than they ever imagined possible. That means transforming those who have been spiritual consumers, constantly receiving spiritual goods, into world changers, becoming the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to those around us. Our purpose does not change. We are to make disciples who will make a difference. The second thing that will not change at Trinity, our theme verse has been Micah 6, 8. It says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We've got a plaque out in the foyer that identifies that. It's all about doing what is right. We believe that if we do these things, we will by nature be world changers. If we do what's right or act justly, if we are filled with compassion for those around us, we are loving mercy. And if we are willing to do whatever God calls us to do, we are walking humbly with our God. Not only will this make us fruitful, enabling us to make an incredible impact on our world, but it will also please the Lord. So that's who we are, and that's what we seek to do. But in order to do this well, we are going to need to change our perspective on a few things. To help us do this, I want to start the new year with a passage about someone who needed to change his perspective. I had Maria read a portion of that passage already. It's found in Acts chapter 9. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there already, that would help us. It's the story of a man who was very religious. He was very intelligent. He was very devoted. It's the story of a man who had huge respect from other people and the potential to become someone great, at least in the eyes of those other people, the righteous. 
It's a story about a man named Saul. Now, I know we're going to talk about him. You're probably going to hear me at some point today accidentally refer to him as Paul. Eventually, his name will be changed to Paul, but at this point, he is Saul. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done for your, to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Going to stop there, although the passage goes on and says that exactly what Ananias is instructed to do, he does. And when he lays hands on Paul, that something like scales fall from his eyes and he is healed. The first thing that I want you to see today is that God knows you. You ever feel like you're almost anonymous, almost as if God doesn't even care who you are? In verse 4, Saul is confronted by God, but not in a generic sense. You know, I think of the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and he preached to thousands of people, and he tells them that you are the ones who put Jesus to death, and he calls them out, but it is in a very generic sense. He is calling out the group of people. As Jesus addresses Saul in our passage, he does not simply use pronouns. He uses his name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't just call him by name. He calls him by name twice. In other words, if you missed it the first time, let me make sure I got you. I know exactly who you are. Maybe the first thing that needs to change about our perspective today is this, maybe we need to realize that God is very much aware of who you are. He knows you even better than you know yourself. You're not just some generic figure, irrelevant to what God has in store for humanity. You matter, and the way you live matters to God. I wonder if maybe some of us have minimized the impact of our 
lives and of our choices. It's not that big of a deal. It's not like God really cares. I'm not hurting anybody. It's just one small thing that I did, and I'm just one small person in this gigantic kaleidoscope of humanity. But there is nothing insignificant about you or the choices that you make in your life. God knows you by name. Does that change your perspective about yourself or the things that you do? Here's the interesting thing about God's knowledge of you. He knows you even though you may not know him. Verse 5 tells us that as Saul is being addressed and accused, Saul poses a question. Who are you, Lord? Now, the way he words this question is important. On the one hand, Saul apparently has no idea as to who is speaking to him on this occasion. He hasn't put the pieces together, hasn't connected the dots, realizing that this is probably God himself. There is a genuine sense of ignorance regarding what is going on here. Why do you persecute me? Well, who is he persecuting? Christians, the name of Christ. But on the other hand, there is a recognition that although he may not have a full grasp of what is taking place and who is doing this, Saul does know that he is outmatched. Did you catch what he says? Who are you, Lord? Maybe he understood that this was actually God that is speaking, but it is unlikely. In their culture, the term Lord simply referred to an individual who is in a greater position than yourself. So he likely didn't get that this was God right away. He is asking that question, who are you, Lord? But he did understand that the one who just knocked him off his camel was greater than him. He recognized that there is something different, more mighty and more powerful than I. In today's culture, Both of these aspects come into play. There are many, even in the church, who do not truly know God. He is a theory. He is a concept. But he is not perceived as a real being who will show up and speak to God's people. Maybe he was real before. But for some of us, we have reduced him to nothing more than a teacher of good principles and morals. Again, I'm not necessarily talking about those outside the church today, am I? Although this would apply to many of them as well. You see, many of us know of God, even though we come to church every Sunday and go through the ritual of church and we talk about being Christians and we tell other people who Jesus is. But many of us know of God, but we don't truly know God but he knows you by name. Then there's the reference to Lord. We live in a world of people who may not know God, but they realize that there is one who is greater than them. They realize that there are things that God can do that nobody else can do. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes. That's because even those who don't know God or don't want to believe in God know that hope in him is better than no hope at all. 
Well, there's beauty in knowing that even though we may not truly know God, he knows us. Because there is one that we can call out to. Maybe it's time for us personally to get to know him, to change our perspective. Stop assuming that knowing of him is the same thing as knowing him personally. There are individuals in our lives that we would consider them acquaintances. Is that Jesus to you? Is he an acquaintance, someone that you interact with when you see him on Sunday, but you won't talk to him again until next Sunday morning? Is Jesus nothing more than a theory, nothing more than an idea, or is he real to you? You see, we're not all that different from Saul. He thought he had the perfect plan for his life. Actually, his plan would lead to nothing more than failure. But God had a plan for him, and God has a plan for you as well. It's interesting, as we talk about vision, God's plan for Saul is revealed through a time of blindness. God uses the very thing that is opposite of vision to get his message across. I guess this was sort of God's way of pointing out that Saul's vision for his own life was completely misguided. In the midst of his encounter with God, Saul is blinded and actually has to be led around by other people for three days. This man, who was so well respected by others, is now dependent upon other people. And to put this into a more accurate perspective, you need to know that a blind man in their culture was considered of little value to anybody. In addition, there were no eye doctors that Saul could go to to have his vision fixed. There were those who could help with various health issues, but not blindness. That's why often Jesus' healing of the blind stood out as significant miracles. It was believed that only God could truly make a blind man see again. Not to mention that in Saul's encounter... On the Damascus Road, it was evident, it was revealed that this blindness was not a natural blindness. This came as a result of a supernatural act of God. Certainly, Saul had wondered to himself as to whether there was any hope that his vision might ever be restored. But Saul's vision would be granted through another character in our passage. Verse 10 introduces us to a man named Ananias. We don't know much about him, but we know that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. We also know that Ananias was very much aware of what was going on around him. Again, I wonder how insignificant Ananias felt. We know nothing about him except for this. It's as if he did not exist, yet God knew him by name, and God had a plan for his life. He had placed his trust in God, but would his trust even matter? He knows Saul is coming. Saul is coming to arrest those who call themselves Christians. Maybe Ananias himself figured this was going to be a short-lived faith because I'm probably going to be arrested and even killed. But in verse 11, we see that God had a purpose for both Ananias and Saul. Ananias will go and he will heal Saul, and it's unlikely that Ananias gets the whole picture right away. But what he does know is that he has just been invited into something far bigger than himself. Maybe he wondered 
what purpose his life would have. Now he knows. God is going to use him to heal a blind man. By the way, we know an awful lot about Saul. We know the ministry that would exist, that would follow. We don't really hear much about Ananias after this experience either. But do you think that makes him insignificant? I'm going to tell you, sometimes it's those who serve in the background that are just as, just as significant, if not even more significant, than those who are in the forefront. Ananias was an incredibly important figure. I wonder what great things God wants to do through you. What is God's purpose for you? I know that just as he gave purpose to Ananias and in the near future, he would give purpose to Saul. God has plans for you too. Do you believe that today? If not, you need to change your perspective. In fact, as we look at this story, we see that God absolutely wants to change the world through ordinary people like Ananias and imperfect people like Saul and seemingly insignificant people like you and me. But he is not just talking about making people feel better or offering them encouraging words. Yes, those can be valuable things. I'm sure Saul appreciated Ananias removing the scales from his eyes. That's a great thing. As soon as he could see again, I picture Saul laughing and celebrating. And this first face that he sees, there is a sense of loyalty to Ananias at this point. I mean, this guy just removed scales from his eyes. Saul had likely resigned himself to the fact that I'm never going to see again. I'm sure he appreciated Ananias. But real purpose is not in the temporary. It's not in the removing of the scales physically. God plans to give our lives eternal purpose. I shared a post this week on Facebook regarding a decision that was made by my mom many years ago. Without going into too much detail, she was raised in a less than godly home with incredible brokenness. She escaped that life by way of the military, but she was still a broken lady. Fast forward to the early 80s. She is the mother of three, and she could continue in the same path or she could make a change. She chose to change. The church and Christ became priorities in her life. And the impact of such a decision was was significant, not insignificant, excuse me. Not only would she become a better person, but she would raise children who would forever reap the benefits of that decision. Today, I am who I am, partially because of the decision that she made then. Her life and her impact are not just about today. Lives are being changed for eternity. I didn't know your sisters were going to be here. So I apologize for doing that in front of them. In Ananias and Saul's case, God had chosen them to be world changers. What about you? How big of a difference can your life make? Do you believe that God could use you to change eternity for someone else? If not, it is time 
to change your perspective. I want to close with one last thing that is really important. Maybe all this seems too big for you and for me. I know that I'm not the smartest individual in this room, nor the most gifted person in the room. I know that I've made poor choices along the way, and maybe others in here feel the same way. Maybe you wonder why God doesn't just choose someone else more qualified and with less baggage than you. The only thing I can tell you is that if God calls you to do something, he will always equip you to do it. You know, Ananias had never previously laid hands on an individual, at least that we know of, to heal them from blindness, but God equipped him for the task. What about the things that Saul would do? His name would eventually be changed to Paul. He would do incredible things. He'd heal other people. He'd raise people from the dead. He would proclaim the gospel message so clearly that those who opposed him would be put to shame. He would become the greatest missionary of all time, even mentoring multiple pastors in the New Testament. He would be credited with writing a large portion of what we now call the New Testament. All this from a man who had become spiritually blind, became physically blind, yet he would eventually see God for who he really was. His perspective was changed. Verse 16 begins with the phrase, I will show him. God's talking about a blind man at that moment. Again, it's not by accident that God is using an image that implies vision when he's talking about Saul, a man who is blind. What would God show him? He would show him that he would have to suffer. The term suffer doesn't mean he would be in pain or abused. Certainly at times it does. But do you remember when Jesus invited the children and come to him? If you read from the King James Version, it says, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Was he saying that I'm going to abuse them when they get here? Was he saying that this is a really difficult thing for kids to come? No. He's saying, let them come. Let them experience me firsthand. Suffer them. Let them have this experience. Saul, there are things you're going to experience. Saul would have to suffer physically. But it was more than that. Saul would become a world changer. I believe today that God will ask many of us to do things that seem too big and completely out of our perspective, but I believe that God wants to do those great things through you and me. I talked, I guess uh, earlier, I talked about making an eternal difference. A couple years ago, some of you guys will remember, we made an intentional effort to reach people over the course of a year through this church. Our goal was to reach 52 people to have 52 individuals give their heart to Christ over the course of a year. That's one per week. Corporately, as we strove for that goal, we did not reach the goal. We only had 50 people give their heart to Christ that particular year. I think that we would have made it if we could have counted some of the kids who went to the altar seven or eight times. We'd have been able to count them over and over again. The point is that the goal seemed too big when we first talked about it, but nothing is too big for our God. What if the goal this year were not corporate, but individually driven? I want to challenge each of you to identify in 2020 at least one individual that you will lead to Christ over this next year. I want to challenge you today to be a part of something bigger than yourself, 
to be a part of something much bigger than you even imagined possible? What if each individual who attends this church would lead one individual to Christ over the next 365 days? I'm going to tell you, this church will look very different than it does today. Your family will look different than it was today. Your friends will look different than it does today. See, the reality is, if all of us would take our role in this, we could be the world changers that God called us to be all along. I want to challenge you to do a couple things to help make that happen. First of all, I want to invite you as a church to begin to pray for specific individuals that God would give you the opportunity to lead them to Christ. That maybe the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to their hearts even before you come so that when you come, they will be so open and ready to hear the gospel that it will be simply a matter of formality because the Holy Spirit will have already done the work. Begin to pray for them now. Begin to look for opportunities to share with those around you. Prepare to see God move in their lives and in yours. If you will do those things, pray. If you will begin to look for the opportunities and you will begin to prepare for when those opportunities come, God will do great things for you. Does that seem too big? No. Because when it really comes down to it, this is God's work in you. It was too big for Ananias to come and remove the scales off of Saul's eyes. But he did. Because God enabled him to do it. I believe that God will enable us to do far more. At death, there are only two possible options. Heaven or hell. What if God could use you to move someone from death to life? He can and he will, if you will allow him to do so. If you will bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, our greatest desire is to please you, to know you personally, to interact with you, and to one day spend eternity with you. Until that day comes, Lord, you have placed us here for a reason. And I pray for each individual who is here that we would be good stewards with the opportunities that you have placed before us. We believe that you have called us to do more than just live within a culture, but you've called us to change this culture. Let it begin today. If there be one that does not truly know you, reveal yourself to them. Let them see that you are real and that you desire a personal relationship with them. If there be one here that maybe they know you, but they have never truly dug in and allowed your spirit to reign in their lives, I pray that that would begin today. We talked about it earlier. We, we want revival. We need revival. Let it begin right here in us. And then I pray that you would equip us to be your hands and feet. There are individuals that are already on our hearts and minds that as we pray this morning, we want so much to see them come to a right relationship with you. I pray that right now you would send your Holy Spirit to speak to their hearts and prepare them for the message that will come. I pray that in each of our lives, you would help us to begin to look for those opportunities. And when they come, help us to step through obediently sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. 
and I pray for fruit. I pray that we would genuinely see lives changed, not because of how good we are, but because of how great the God who equips us is. I pray today that you would equip us for greatness. In your name we pray, amen. I do want to challenge you and encourage you. If you have not identified someone already that you want to share the gospel with this year, take this afternoon, take that time. I'm not going to ask you who that individual is, but when you reach that individual for Christ, I do want you to come and tell me. I want to know that this church is actually doing what God called us to do. I want us to be able to celebrate together the transforming of people's lives, individuals moving from death to life. So as you lead someone to Christ, we want to hear about it. Let us hear about it. Thank you for being with us this morning and go in peace. Come back next week. I promise I'll let you out on time.